Hi everyone and a very warm welcome to this episode of the Learning Journeys podcast from Lacuna Learning. Thank you so much everyone for listening and subscribing and we just hope you're all keeping really well just now. In today's episode we are delighted to be joined by Royal Air Force fast jet pilot Matt. He's had this incredible journey over the last 15 years or so and I'm just delighted that he's made the time to join us today. I'm going to talk a little bit about how I know Matt um, later on so we'll just get straight into the conversation. Matt, thank you so much for making the time to come on the podcast. Thanks uh, for inviting me on, Doug. It's a pleasure. So, aside from your uh, exploits, um, flying very fast things, I'm aware that you've actually done a pretty decent amount of sport over the years, particularly stuff in the rivers and the mountains. I seem to remember you going on an expedition in Austria and one in Canada a few years back, as I remember. So, the question on the podcast we ask everybody, if you could go on an adventure anywhere in the world, where would you go? Who would you go with? And what would you do? There are no COVID restrictions for the purposes of the activity. I'm glad to hear it. So, yeah, this is a, an interesting one. I think if we was to go anywhere in the world, it would be Antarctica, mainly because I actually have been reading about that a lot recently. And it, it just seems like a really uh, fascinating place to, to go. I know some people might say there's not a lot there, but it really is probably one of the last kind of real wildernesses and unexplored parts of the world. So I think if you're going to have an adventure anywhere, you could probably have an adventure in Antarctica. Uh, on that, uh, Michael Palin's book, Erebus, uh, is highly recommended. That's one of the books I've been reading about it recently, and there's some uh, fascinating stories about um, the exploration and discovery of the continent back at the uh, in the 1800s, so well worth a read. Who would I go with? Probably, uh, probably Tim Peake, of all people. I think, um, I think he'd be a good person to have along on an adventure expedition and uh, I think there'd be a lot to talk about um, that would interest me uh, with him so I think I'd go with him and what would I do I think if I could I'd, I'd like to get onto the uh, the polar plateau which I think would be an adventure in itself because you've got to climb up a, a glacier and it's about 2,000 sorry correction 10,000 feet is the altitude up in that plateau so it's a, a, a heck of a, a climb to get up there so I think that would be quite a challenge in itself um, so that's that's probably what I'd like to do if I had the option of going on an adventure right now without any strings attached. I mean, that was an incredible answer. I've asked that, that question like over 20 times now, and I'm always fascinated by what people really want to do. But Antarctica with Tim Peake is, um, you have set the bar very, very high indeed there, Matt. That's, that's, that's a pretty good one. A few people have copped out recently and said they'd just go around the world, which is a good answer, of course, but to say, no, I want to go there and... I know, know who I'd bring, but I also predict that you and Tim would have a lot to talk about, um, him being ex-military pilot and then flew to space. So, uh, yeah, that is a conversation. Maybe we should get him on the pod, see if we get the two of you to have a conversation. That that would be the dream, right? Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, right. I'm excited to see where this goes now. It is incredibly hard to introduce Matt and to try and summarise your journey succinctly. So I'm going to let you do that for yourself in a moment. For the benefit of the listeners... Matt and I got to know each other during our time on the East of Scotland University's Air Squadron, where we were both studying full-time at different universities, but were also members of the Royal Air Force as reservists, and we were learning to fly, organising, going on expeditions and all that, that kind of good stuff. As often happens at the end of university, our paths diverged, and you went off to join the Royal Air Force, and I went off to, to wear a tracksuit for a living and mess about in sport, as, as far as I can see. So before we dive into your time in the Royal Air Force, and we, I can't wait to get into this a little bit more, and explore a bit about what the current day job is, although it's not really a day job, right? 
could you tell us a bit about your journey growing up in Lanarkshire and guess your journey to this point and, and, and what that's been like for you a little bit? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess growing up was fairly average childhood and everything. Good opportunities, good childhood. Had a nice nice hometown to live in and grow up. So fortunate in that respect um, and had plenty of opportunities uh, for sports. And, and I guess from a young age, I had I was quite keen to push myself and compete in a sporting sense uh, through long distance running and basketball and things. So I think I was encouraged to... Um, go for it and, and push myself uh so that was probably definitely an early early part of my upbringing i think which um has had an impact throughout the rest of my life so from lanarkshire went to university after school went to university at st andrews which was a fantastic four years absolutely loved every minute of that experience uh I met some great people uh, obviously it was on the university air squadron uh, where i met yourself doug again that was in itself a fantastic experience um Never mind being at uni as well. So all around those three years were some of the best years, I think, in my life. It was a great location to be at university. And there, that's where I kind of got involved with the RAF. Well, I started flying prior to the RAF because I knew I wanted to be a pilot, whether it be a civilian pilot or a military pilot. Uh, so I started doing my pilot's license part-time while I was at school, worked on the weekends to pay for it, which meant that I didn't fly very regularly because it's not a cheap thing to do. But I uh, persevered at that and then finally got my license uh, in my first year at uni and then I uh, got involved with the University Air Squadron when I was uh, at St Andrews. And that, that kind of got me involved with the RAF and introduced me to, to what could be offered by being involved with uh, the military. I loved every minute of it. had some great flying experience and more importantly, I'd say some great um, adventurous training experiences. So going to Austria, as I think you mentioned, Doug doing... Uh, river kayaking and klettersteiging which is the same as via ferrata essentially um, and some hill walking uh, what else did we do we went to Canada on a wilderness sea kayaking expedition around British Columbia which is probably probably one of the best things I've ever done in my life and all these experiences really I, I can tell and I can look back and I can see how each one of those experiences um, developed me as a person and changed me as a person and really opened my horizons significantly. So I really had to be grateful and thankful to the um, the University of Squadron for, for doing that, because I certainly think it's uh, made me who I am today, for sure. So um, that was my experience of that. Uh, and then from the UAS, having had all that insight and training with the RAF reserves, it was obviously a natural doorway into the, um, the RAF full-time, uh, which was a good option when I graduated because um, it was at the time of the financial recession so uh, jobs were becoming scarce particularly in uh, the airline world for flying so um, the Air Force was a, a great opportunity at that point. Yeah thanks Matt I mean we, we could just we could probably spend an hour just talking about the stuff that happened on that journey we had a chat before the podcast about things that happened during, the, during those university years. I'm interested before we dive into your the Royal Air Force, I guess, training pipeline for, for pilots. I'm just dead interested. You talked about how the University Air Squadron and the adventurous training and, and the flying training, but I got this sense that it gave you something you didn't already have. And I'm wondering if you can put your finger on that maybe a little bit. You know, What was it that those experiences gave you that you didn't have when you walked in the door, I guess, day one? I think, I think what they did was put me out of my comfort zone doing stuff that I never thought I would probably do. But innately, I would want to have done them, but perhaps I didn't feel 
I could or ever would. Uh, so it gave me those opportunities to go and do adventurous stuff because I always had quite an adventurous um, kind of, you know, always throughout my life, always been quite an adventurous person. And I, I think it just gave me the opportunity to go out and do things that I never thought I'd really do and put me in positions that were outside my comfort zone for, for definite. And I think the growth that occurs when you're outside your comfort zone is is really important. And I think that's what it did. It just unlocked things in me that I probably didn't think I had or could do. And uh, I guess gave gave me a confidence to be able to do things and push myself and, and go for things perhaps that maybe I wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, it's really interesting that, isn't it? Those those experiences and uh, <clears throat> it's fascinating. On the podcast, I've had some amazing guests on and uh, the one that makes me laugh when you were talking there is uh, Robbie Phillips, who's a professional climber, uh, as he does for a living. And, and Robbie shared a trade secret, which is that he actually hates camping and he actually doesn't really like being cold and wet and um, he tolerates it as part of his job, right? But he just doesn't really love it. But he also recognises that it, it leads to growth. It's a it's a struggle, but it's it's something worth doing. So it's interesting that you talk about without those experiences and opportunities, you, you might not have had that confidence to push yourself maybe a bit and, and to and to grow. Which, of course, would have been really important uh, when you started the training pipeline. Now, for the benefit of our listeners who are not familiar with the incredibly long and complicated training pipeline, I wonder if you could talk people through what that's like and maybe a wee bit about your experience of going through it. Yeah, so the, the training uh, to become a RAF Astrid pilot is... Um, is well known to be hard work and a pretty intense experience and uh, it's a long training system as well so it took eight over eight years for me to go from joining the uh, RAF after university to being fully qualified on the um, Eurofighter Typhoon uh, and in that time yes there were gaps in my my training where um, I uh, held and did some uh, other jobs for two or three years uh, while waiting for slots to appear in the training system even with that, it's still a long and intense uh, time. So you start off um, doing your basic officer training where you, you do all your sort of basic military skills and discipline and field skills uh, to a fairly basic level just to get, get make sure that everyone's at that same baseline military standard um, and it's the, their chance to give you a hard time and give you inspections without notice and pick you up for your shoes not being shiny enough all the usual kind of things you see in the film is is what that sort of initial phase is like so it's not very pleasant uh, but you just have to roll with it and expect that that is exactly how it's going to be Uh, and it can be quite fun and amusing as well at times so after that you then go into sort of leadership exercises and then more into academics about air power how uh, it applies to the modern world and um, how the RF utilizes it so it becomes a bit more theoretical and academic uh, as you as you progress and then you have some sort of final leadership exercises where they assess your um, leadership skills and um, what you've learned. So that's about seven months. And then you go on to your ground training for flying uh, if you're going into in as a pilot. Uh, and that's, um, again, about two months of academics to uh, understand all the various subjects that you need to be familiar with for flying. So aerodynamics, uh, rules and regulations, meteorology, uh, navigation, uh, aircraft instruments and systems. Uh, all these sort of um, topics which are clearly critical to be able to safely operate uh, aircraft. Once that's complete and you've passed your ground school exams, you then go on to your elementary flight training, which is on a light aircraft with a, a propeller. So just like the sort of light aircraft you'll see from uh, little flying clubs uh, near hometowns, for example, uh, Cessnas and things, a similar kind of aircraft type, but 
more maneuverable and aerobatic so you can do uh, aerobatic maneuvers and um, formation flying so a little bit more advanced than uh, your average light aircraft trainer so you do about um, nine months on on that uh, learning to fly so that's the basic flying skills this is how you fly the aircraft and uh, it takes you from someone off the street that's never flown before to uh, someone that can safely fly the aircraft on their own and make the right decisions and handle the aircraft correctly and deal with the emergencies and that's your first building block to then progress so while you're doing this you're also being constantly assessed on your ability as a pilot uh, so you're it always breaks down into two things really so your aircraft handling so how good are you actually just physically flying the aircraft but then probably of equal if not more importance is your airmanship which is your decision making uh, so making the right decisions to make sure that you operate that aircraft effectively and safely um, and efficiently uh, to get get the task completed and that's a really big thing and all the key thing about this um, airmanship really is experience so the only way for that to develop is for you to fly as much as you can and um, see different scenarios and, and and this is just a constant thing that throughout your career you'll, you'll have to do and build up that that bank of experience so that your decision making and airmanship will be as best as it can be uh, so once you've during this time you're as i said you're being assessed throughout and at the end of the course you're you will be uh, what's called streamed so this is where they decide whether you're going to go to fast jets helicopters which is called rotary wing or um, onto multi-engine so uh, generally those that have the best scores will go fast jets because it's the the most demanding arguably of the three streams um, given the nature of the, the job that you do as a fast jet pilot but again it can just depend on who is required where so if they need loads of fast jet pilots more people go fast jets if they don't need so many then more people will go onto the helicopters or onto the uh, uh, transport aircraft uh, so it really depends on a lot of factors but but generally like uh, the better you do the, the more like you are to get jets so after that you you then get onto basic fast jet training which will be on a, a turboprop aircraft which was the Tucano and it's now the, the Texan and that's just a bigger aircraft more complicated bigger engine with uh, more complicated engine types there's more systems to manage and it's also twice the speed of what you were flying previously so you're everything's now happening twice as fast as it had previously and you develop your skills from what you learnt during your elementary flying. So all your basic navigation, uh, formation flying, aerobatics all get um, built upon and uh, you start to do things that are now focusing more towards what you'll do on, on a jet, um, more tactical kind of focused stuff. So low level navigation and um, target runs and uh, leading formations so that you're now getting all that kind of experience building up to be ready to go onto, onto the jets. So that's then again about 18 months of training. Again, every trip is assessed it's just, as I say, getting harder and harder as you go along. When you have successfully completed that phase, then you're then on to your uh, first jet, which is the uh, Hawk T2, based at RAF Valley. And um, that's, uh, again, the speed has doubled yet again. And uh, the complexity of the aircraft, again, has increased significantly. And you now have a jet engine as opposed to a propeller uh, engine, whether that be piston or the um, the turboprop on the, on the Texan. Again, just build. It's just building upon your experiences and uh, increasing the complexity, increasing the difficulty, and it's now really getting focused onto what you'll do to to fly that jet operationally to prepare you for the front line, where you're going to be using their craft uh, in a fighting role as opposed to just flying around. So again, the course initially introduces you to jets and how you fly the jets. So you do all the basic handling of that. Then the second part of the course is 
how you fight the jets. So you do uh, air combat beyond visual range, air combat within visual range, air combat, uh, uh, weaponeering for air to surface attacks, close air support where you're protecting uh, troops on the ground, for example. So it all becomes a lot more tactically focused. So you're learning the base, very basics of the skills that you'll then have to go and use on the front line. Again, everything's assessed. So you have uh, constant pressure of assessment throughout and the difficulty has massively increased at this point compared to anything you've done before. So it's quite a, a, a difficult learning curve. After you then successfully complete a Valley, you'll then go on to an operational conversion unit for the specific type of jet that you'll be flying operationally. So at the moment, you've got either the F-35 Lightning II, which is the, the vertical takeoff and landing Harrier replacement that some people will be familiar with, or the um, Eurofighter Typhoon, which is the, the other uh, fast jet that we have at the moment, which is uh, what I went on to. And the OCU is typically six months to a year, and that's training you on all the specifics of that aircraft and how you tactically use that aircraft uh, as you would for real. So rather than all being fairly generic as it would be on the Hawk, this is now specific tactics and procedures about how you're going to use the aircraft as a, as a weapons platform and how you're going to fight that jet um, for real. So the speed hasn't increased, but the complexity, again, has increased significantly, not just in the systems, but in the procedures that you need, now need to be uh, completely familiar with and uh, able to execute to a good standard. So this is another uh, stage where you're assessed at every trip and you have to meet the standard and you really need to make sure you're on top of things so that when you leave that conversion unit onto your frontline squadron, you're able to uh, arrive at the squadron and start to be a productive um, operational pilot. Having said that, when you arrive in the frontline squadron, you then have a uh, combat-ready workup to do, which, um, again, can take anything up to six to nine months. And that's where you get uh, even more focused tactical training to become a, a combat-ready wingman. So the training never really stops. Once you've got more experience as a wingman, you then get trained to be a, a two-ship leader. Uh, so you're now leading a formation. Uh, and then you can go on to be a four-ship leader, uh, be on, go on to be an instructor. And, and so as you can see, it's just a continual training system that never ends. The pressure does ease somewhat when you get onto your frontline squadron. However, you're still having to meet a certain standard. So you're constantly under assessment. And this is kind of the biggest thing to take away i'd say from the training pipeline is that you can never get to a point where you think you've made it and that's it you constantly need to keep on top of your game and be able to cope with and manage the pressures of that training system for probably as long as you're in your career i guess similar to uh, medical training where you're constantly having to train and study for the next the next uh, qualification or the next um, posting until you become a consultant, for example. So it's um, probably comparable to that, but a very different field altogether. And it certainly takes a lot of resilience, determination and fortitude, I'd say, to cope with that. Um, and sometimes, I must admit, I haven't coped with it as well as I've liked, and it's been a real struggle. So, yeah, it's not, not an easy, easy job by any means, but an uh, interesting one. Yeah, it certainly is, which now negates the need for me to ask you what the day job is, because everybody knows what the day job is. I want to ask you some questions about that. But before I do that, for the benefit of the listeners, so you talked about the speed of the aircraft doubling, basically every time you go on. Um, by the time you get to uh, frontline Typhoon, uh, what sort of speeds are we flying at? Sure. So if you're doing sort of low-level navigation attacks, you're generally uh, 400 
20 uh, knots, so seven miles a minute. And then when you're doing sort of beyond visual range or air-to-air combat within visual range, then you're looking at um, supersonic speed. So Mach 1.2 to 1.5 can be the sort of, the jet can go up to Mach 1.8. So 1.8 times the speed of sound, which is uh, very fast. Very fast, As indeed. you can imagine, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's all relative forever. So when you're at altitude flying, supersonic speeds then you kind of don't notice it it's when you're down low to the ground that you might not be flying as fast but you you get the feeling of the speed as all the details going past so much faster uh, and you have that much more clarity on on um, everything around you and the perspective of, of the speed when you're low down yeah, no, I just wanted to provide some scale for the listeners there because uh, it can all become a bit meaningless. It's like when um, astronomers talk about you know light years and stuff and it's a bit meaningless on most of us. So seven miles a minute at low level um, sounds pretty quick, if you imagine. Yeah, seven miles of, in your car and doing that in 60 seconds. And that gives you, gives you a sense of it. Um, you talked about the resilience needed to get through that training. I'm just really interested, you know, because I want to move on to something else in a second that we've chatted about before this. What's what were some of the skills and strategies that you drew upon? I guess I want to say t- to thrive, but it probably sounds a bit more like survive that pretty brutal training process. But what were some of the things that you used that uh, helped you to to make it through that very long and challenging process? So I think for me, I I felt I managed to cope with the pressure if I felt prepared, uh, which kind of so- sounds a bit of a silly thing to say, but. I used to put a lot of effort into all my preparation for each trip and, and do a lot of visualization. So almost visualize the whole, the, f- the whole flight from starting the engines to flying the mission to, to landing and shutting the aircraft down. I used to visualize the whole thing um, in my mind's eye, uh, as I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be familiar with visualization techniques. And, and that used to really, really help me with uh, feeling prepared for the next, the next trip that I would have to fly. In addition to that, I would also write up a lot of notes from everything I'd learned from that mission. So I'd usually write two or three pages of A4 of notes from all the things that I did well and all the things that I didn't do well at uh, to make sure that I had a record of what to refresh myself on and what, what I learned for the next mission so not to make the same mistakes and also to build on things that went well. So that, that took a lot of um, a lot of time and, and focus to, to do that for so long. But I think that certainly helped. And I think as the pressure became increased and the difficulty started to increase, I started to struggle um, with that and maintaining my composure at times. And, and I really had to um, start to look at ways of managing that. So a book I uh, highly recommend and that really helped is um, called The Pressure Principle by Dr. David Aldred. That really helped with um, how to you know, control your breathing, get yourself in the right mindset, the whole inner dialogue to yourself how big a difference that makes. And there's some key lessons from that book, which I, I really applied through my flying training, which I think made a difference and certainly got me through the times where I was really feeling the pressure to manage the stress. And that certainly worked for the, the short, sort of short-term immediate stress of, of the missions because it would be very easy to get worked up. And even nowadays, I still get really nervous before some uh, flights and missions. And I, I still use the same techniques that I was given by this book to, to manage that. I think in the longer term, because of the long-term pressure, which can clearly have an effect and get to you after a while, those techniques aren't really this as applicable because they're, they're for the kind of heat of the moment or prior to the mission. 
but for the longer term, I got into probably reading about, I guess, it's philosophy, Stoic philosophy, Stoic techniques to reframe things, and that really helped as well. So it sounds a bit unusual, but I think um, some people may be familiar with how Stoic philosophy has had this resurgence, and a lot of the principles from that have, are really helpful to deal with difficult scenarios and how to persevere in difficult circumstances by just reframing things and focusing on what you have control over for example is a big part of it so that really helped to the longer term pressures and uncertainty that comes with being in this job and being away from home for a long time for example and being put in difficult situations yeah thanks matt i think it's really reassuring for the listeners at home that you know matt has been doing this for 15 years now and he um uh, as a frontline fast jet pilot uh, operationally deployed, and he still gets nervous. Um, so if there's athletes listening at home, or even coaches as well, very reassuring that even at that point of events, and Olympians talk about this as well, but he gets that front end, you still get nervous and you, it's still a struggle. It's never like you suddenly reach a point where everything's easy because you do everything better. You know, like it's like running, you know, you you just run faster. It never gets easier. Um, so I find that quite reassuring that even after all this, this stuff that Matt's been through, it still gets nervous sometimes. You talked a bit about, you know, when you get to the front line and, you know, you're being deployed and it's dark and it's fast and things are going on and, you know, things don't always work. You need to kind of draw upon some of the some of the training, some of those reserves and some of those techniques. I'm wondering if you're allowed to tell us, because there are some things I'm being very careful I'm not allowed to ask you about, if you can tell us a bit about maybe times when you've had to do that on the front line. Yeah, of course. So um, I think the, the one that sticks out in my mind was my my first ever operational mission so been through all the training for eight or nine years i've got combat ready on the front line on the typhoon and i'm on my first deployment overseas uh, about to go my first operational mission uh, over a fairly nasty part of the world where there's some pretty horrible stuff going on on the ground to try and uh, help out people we were supporting out there and the night before that mission i, I really struggled to sleep it was a mixture of real anxiety not because of necessarily of was going on but because I wanted to make sure I did well I didn't want to screw up in my first mission and yeah I didn't want to end up on the ground somewhere that I definitely didn't want to be so a mixture of the anxiety but also a mixture of excitement because I'd spent a long time training for this and this was finally me getting to do the job for real and so yeah I can't say I got much sleep that night but I think that's probably natural yeah I think the I remember being feeling pretty much the same way the next morning and making a mental, real mental effort to um, try and stay focused and calm my nerves and uh, make sure that I was going to be ready to, to perform. And I think when I got strapped into jet, I kind of started to calm down because I was now just back into my routine of doing my checks, starting the jet up, going through all the usual procedures. And I was still pretty nervous as we flew out to where we were going. It's a good hour and a half you know, longer than that flight out where we were. And we have to get... Uh, fuel from the um uh, the tanker so conduct air to air refueling um as part of that as well and i uh, really really struggled to get the initially to get conduct air to air refueling it's really can be quite a difficult task uh, in itself but i hadn't really had any issues with it previously but i was um clearly still pretty pretty nervous and a bit wired about the whole thing and it took me quite a few attempts to finally make contact with the, the basket. So to put it into perspective, you have a, a fuel probe on the side of your jet, which you deploy, and you have to try and get that into a, I think it's about five foot, if that diameter basket, which has the, it's on the end of a fuel hose. And you make contact with that, and that's how you then get fuel 
going into your, your tanks while you're airborne. So it involves close formation flying with a, a large airline aircraft and then also really carefully coordinating and flying your, your fuel probe into this basket, which is moving about in the airflow and be bouncing all over the place with turbulence. So it's quite a demanding and delicate task to manage. But eventually I managed to make contact with the basket, get the fuel, and then after that was absolutely fine. I was just in the zone, ready to get on with on with things. So it took yeah, a lot of effort and up to that point, I think, to really settle into into it. And I was definitely using the the sort of mental techniques of trying to control my breathing and uh, keep positive dialogue and stay focused on uh, on what I was doing uh, to manage the um the sort of the nerves and the pressure. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Just seeing like I guess for you, like you do all this training, it's like such a long time. Like in in sport, you know, you might train for like Olympians for four years to then try and use the stuff you've you've trained for. But in your case, you'd train for like nearly a decade to learn to do this job. Are you able to talk about something else that happened on operations? Are we allowed to talk about this, or is this a, a not for public discussion anymore? Yeah, yeah. You're talking about the uh, emergency had um, uh, not that long ago. It, yeah, yeah. Of course, not a problem. Yeah. So uh, it was nighttime. The weather wasn't great. Quite fatiguing when you're on nights as well, because you um, you have night vision goggles on your helmet, and it's a lot of weight on your neck, and the missions can be uh, several hours long and you're landing late at night, etc. So it's, it's quite a tiring and uh, exhausting time. And it was on this uh, one of these night missions where I started having various um, electrical issues with the aircraft, just random things like the, the cockpit lighting went full brightness, which in itself doesn't sound like a big issue, but um, at night you really want all the, the lighting to be dimmed down to preserve your night vision as much as possible so you can look out the cockpit and see what's going on in the outside the environment a lot better. This particular point when you're coming into land, for example, you need to see the wrong lights. And if the if the cockpit lighting's at full brightness, you're gonna like it's gonna really impair your um your vision. So uh and, and there was I haven't ever experienced that before. So there's various things like that that happened and external lighting started to fail. Lots of small kind of not really associated issues started occurring and um, that I hadn't I'd never seen before or, or trained to. And this just slowly started to progress throughout the night. Initially, I wasn't too concerned. I was happy to prioritise the mission over the fact that I had these minor niggles going on with the aircraft because I knew that what we were doing was important and uh, I didn't want to, to cut the mission short. Uh, but as the night progressed, eventually problems started to build on top of each other and become more frequent and uh, eventually got uh, a warning caption suggesting that there could be a, an issue with um, one of the engines. Um, which was a lot more serious. And at that point, the emergency cars had, would have me diverting to the nearest uh, suitable airfield, which would be in the theatre of operations, so where we were uh, flying around, essentially. So at this point, I now had some a proper emergency to deal with, and I was a bit concerned that there potentially could be a, a fire causing all these random problems uh, that just kept on building upon each other. Uh, and I started had to take it a lot more seriously and... Um, uh, conduct a single engine approach uh, in the fairly bad weather with bad radios so I could barely get any radio communication with the with the um, tactical control who were controlling us and uh, it was all quite uh, emotional at times trying to um, uh, to manage the, the situation but I kind of knew what I had to do I knew that I was committed to having to divert and land somewhere where I didn't really want to 
to be going into. So I knew that that, that was the decision and I just had to now make sure I got on with it properly. And I, my wingman was helpful. He uh, conducted the visual inspection of the aircraft and helped with the radio relay. So we worked quite closely as a team uh, to make sure that everything was covered and nothing was missed in the emergency drills. Um, and then he acted as a relay so that the um, air traffic control were aware of what was going on. Uh, and then I managed to make a safe approach and landing where I needed to be. And then uh, as I got got the aircraft stopped and um, sort of settled down, I had to keep the power on for some time, the engines running for some time to um, cool the brakes, for example. And I then realised when I came to shut down that I couldn't get out the aircraft, that the um, canopy actuating system had failed as well. And um, that left me in a bit of a awkward position where I was at this unfamiliar field in the middle of the night uh, on an exposed uh, area of tarmac, which um, is not really where I wanted to be when I knew that there was a threat of rocket attacks, which is the whole reason we'd been there in the first place. I had the option of either ejecting the canopy, which um, would be quite aggressive and would mean that the canopy would be shooting off in rockets and uh, go several hundred feet into the air and potentially injure people on the ground or cause further damage. And furthermore, I'd be sitting with a load of rockets going off nearby my head so I kind of wasn't keen on that option. The other option was to try and get the ground crew to actuate the canopy or get the canopy open using various other ways to try and solve the issue but I was fairly confident it was not going to work but I had to go through the process and try and communicate with them without any um, uh, voice comms how to try and get the canopy open from the outside which didn't work. Uh, and then eventually I had to try and ask them if they could, if they had an angle grinder and I had to then get them to cut a hole in the canopy to allow me to get out. And I'd been in the aircraft for quite a long time by now and was uh, kind of uh, getting a bit fed up with the situation. And I just needed to get out that jet as uh, all the power had died completely by this point. So, yeah, it was all in all uh, an interesting experience. Um, it's probably the best way of putting it. And, you know, getting out the aircraft and finding yourself in this unfamiliar base in the middle of the night. I then had to pin, put all the safety pins and all the weapons, which took like a good length of time, and try and make sure the jet was secure uh, before then uh, trying to make communication with my home base to find out what was going on next. So, yeah, it was quite a... Uh, yeah, as I say, an interesting experience and a good, I guess, a good way to test how all the training works and how effective it is when you have to actually carry out all these emergency drills for real. So yeah. Wow, I'm just uh, making sense of like I've known you for a pretty long time and it feels like a really long way from like you know you first getting in an airplane for the first time and learning to fly this little light aircraft around the place to having to do all of that in the dark under pressure and yeah if you, if, you, if you get it wrong it's not like there's no reset button on this like when it goes wrong it goes really wrong so that's an amazing story i always say this about this point in the podcast i would just listen back to that story i'm also struck though by something that you know matt i, I would there's a parallel to you and alex honnold who's known as no big deal that um you describe a really 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 serious emergency as no big deal because you're trained to do it you just get on with business right and uh yeah there's a there's a lesson in there for all of us I'm dead interested in this, this final part of, of the podcast just to explore a bit about how you make sense of these things. So I guess in two parts, really. What One is like on a personal level, like emotionally, how do you make sense of that night and other nights and things that have happened? But also perhaps how do you, as a team, as a group, there's a lot of people listening to podcasts who are really interested in, in, how, in how we debrief. So I guess I'm interested, like how do you personally and how do you like collectively make sense of 
um, things that happen in, in fast jets. Sure, yeah. So I think the thing that I noticed probably most about the emergency was not so much the... My main concern was had I made the right decisions uh, and I was kind of going through going over the whole sequence of events in my head for quite a while afterwards and making sure that I'd made the right choice and did everything as well as I could because all these things get scrutinised and reviewed uh, after the events and so you, you you know if you've made mistakes you will get they will get picked up you might not you're not going to get punished for them but you know it'll be noted and lessons learned from it so I think that was probably my main concern was like first of all okay make sure everything's safe and then did I do everything uh, correctly uh, and it took a while for me to be f- satisfied that I did everything I could and as well as I could so I was content that like, that was that put to bed the other factor I think was the uh, after I got back I was put into COVID isolation because this was in the height of COVID-19 so I think the the thing that was more difficult was the lack of communication with back home uh, so unable to let them know what happened or where I was or anything and then um, when I got back, I was then in isolation away from my squadron colleagues. Um, and that was difficult, having had that experience to then be put into isolation for, for some time. So that that was uh, gave me time to think, but also quite unpleasant because you're quite tight-knit as a squadron. And I kind of felt like I wanted to talk it through with people and things and didn't really have the option. So that was the, the thing I'd say I noticed most from that. As far as debriefing is concerned, I think... There's, this is something we, we do for everything. We, we debrief everything because you need to really make sure that every hour of flying, every hour of training you do, you get the maximum value out of it because it's an expensive business to fly jets and uh, it's a complicated business. So you want to make sure you get maximum value out of it. So for debriefing, we typically will debrief for anything between three to six hours post missions, uh, depending on what level you're at to get all the lessons out. And it's uh, it can be quite laborious. It can be quite tedious and it can be quite painful depending on how well the, the mission went. So it's important though to make sure that as collectively you learn from each other and um, you learn, you can draw out those lessons for others as well. So typically we'll debrief ourselves and debrief other people within the same formation and other people will own up to their own mistakes and you need to be able to pick up on their mistakes and, and give a, an instructional fix to how to do things differently or better the next time. And I think the most important thing for debriefing is you need to just be honest with yourself and own your own mistakes and bring them up and not try and hide behind things or hide them because it never works because everything you do is recorded and on tapes. You need to own up to your mistakes and if you have a point for someone else, you need to just make sure you present it in a way that is um, fair and non-judgmental and in a professional way that then people can learn from from that error. But ultimately, I think the most important thing is just to own your mistakes and be humble about it and uh, take it for what it is, which is that you're trying to learn to be better and that you're going to make mistakes. There's going to be errors. There's going to be things where you're not going to make the standard potentially. And it's just really important that you Except that that's the whole point of what you're doing is to to get better and try and stay focused and get the most from that debrief because of the amount of time and effort and money that's being invested into it. So that's the most important thing I think about debriefing. Yeah, thanks, Matt. That's, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I want to ask you one question on that before before we uh, get to the final bit of the podcast. And I attempt to try and summarize this as just unbelievable conversation. Yeah, so I remember this from 
from my brief time in the Air Force, you know, doing like a one I remember the most clearly was a first formation flight, solo flight. And one thing that's really interesting, I think the world of sport could learn from is that when we did that debrief, there was an instructor in an aircraft with a student and there was two students in the aircraft on their own and I was one of those students. And some things had, had happened. It hadn't gone quite to plan, which is just what happens, right? And um, yeah, this business of you need to be honest and say stuff you could have done better. And I was pretty open about that. But actually I needed to hold one of the instructors to account on what, what they had done or not done and how they'd handled that and so on. And um, I, I remember that, although they didn't really want to hear what I had to say, they also welcomed it and said, well, actually, this is how we learn. This is this is how, how we get better. And I, I just think, find that really fascinating. You don't, and I think in sport, we're often quite quite equitable. It's generally quite flat profiles, but not always. Quite often, it's the coach enlightening everybody else. And maybe we need to hold the coach to account. Maybe they aren't as good as they needed to be today. But I remember that, that in that instant, actually, the, the, the squadron boss spoke to me afterwards and said, yeah, you're quite right to disagree with him. He's a much more experienced pilot than you, so he's coming from a different place. But actually you made some really good points and it was almost encouraged. I guess my question for you, and maybe you've already answered it with the honesty and the, the kind of candor or kind of psychological safety. Where do you think that comes from, that environment or that climate where junior pilots feel able to challenge squadron bosses and you know everything in between? Because you know, we have ranks and hierarchies in the military. Where do you think that real honesty and vulnerability comes from? So yeah, it's um, it's a bit odd because in the military, as you say, you have like a, a very strict hierarchy, which is depends on what arm of the military you're in. Certainly, the army, I think, is very very strict hierarchy. The RAF is less so, just by the nature of of the sort of work that the RAF does and how it's highly technical, for example. But I think the the way this is the kind of um, culture where you can not criticize, but you can question things and you can uh, debrief and raise points to people that are more senior to you or are more experienced than you it comes down to when you are in that formation debrief when the door shuts in that debriefing room you do the time hack uh, you state the formation call sign everybody in that room is just a formation number so you don't refer to people by rank you don't refer to people by name they're one two three or four and that is that is the level playing field and whoever is dash one so the the, the flight lead is the guy that is owning the formation and owning that brief and then owning the debrief. And yeah, they can be challenged if um, or questioned if there's something that's incorrect. That's completely acceptable. But ultimately, it could be a junior pilot that's uh, the two-ship lead or the four-ship lead that is um, leading the squadron boss. And they need to be able to debrief the squadron boss on their flying and their tactical execution points uh, so that they can, everyone in the room can learn. And this is why you can have like a junior wingman who picks up something or has read something that perhaps the more experienced people just haven't looked at in a long time. And because this junior wingman has uh, just been, when I say wingman, that that's just a term. It could be a, a, a girl as well. We've got plenty of female pilots in RF as well, but uh, wingman is a term that's used. So they could be having just read uh, something recently because they're studying to learn about how to become combat ready they've picked up something that has been forgotten about by the people that haven't read that document for several years potentially because um, they've got other things to be focusing on and learning about so that's a really good environment and I'd say it generally works well but it is also slightly personality driven so depending on who the boss is or who the instructor is or the flight lead is will kind of set the tone for the the debrief and the brief but um, the very best instructors and flight leads are those that 
maintain a very professional debrief or brief and um but are also humble enough to be able to criticize themselves or to pick up their own points um and also accept any points from the floor but they, they also need to be able to speak to those that are higher ranking than them and be able to train them as well because that's a really important part of the job as you get some um senior officers coming in who haven't flown the jet for very long and need to be trained up and they need to be receptive to all the training as well so it's a kind of a flat hierarchy but whoever the flight leader instructor is will own that room and own that debrief wow there was like a lot in there i just you could replace like seniors with coaches and all sorts of stuff there for sport i was yeah oh my goodness everyone listen back to that like this is just there was so much in there i love this idea of we have hierarchies, but but not in debriefs. This the kind of culture where you can, you're allowed to question and critique, and it's kind of made okay. And I just love that, like, yeah, the rank is irrelevant when the door shuts. Whoever was leading it was leading it, regardless. And and I love this idea that actually it it sounds to me like a lot of it is about learning, and that the learning is what is what drives drives the agenda a little bit. I'm gonna do this really difficult thing now, Matt. I'm gonna try and summarize this this unbelievable conversation. So here we go. So you started out, you know, in like. Well, you started out by saying you're going to go to Antarctica. That's pretty cool. Let's just not forget that for a moment. This like really, uh, well, really humble. We talked this a lot today. This really humble upbringing and a humble start to, to what you did, and just this, yeah, this maybe sense of doing stuff you didn't think you could do or things you didn't think you could do. You know, university air squads and stuff like unlocking stuff in you potential and um, maybe giving you some confidence that you know you were more able than you maybe thought you were. Yeah, going through the we talked about this on a different podcast, which I'll link to the pressure bubble of training and the city being assessed all the time. But this idea of like a lot of it's about decision-making, you're building up this bank of experience. So the more scenarios we can show you, the, the more the more we, we can do that. Things become more tactically focused as, as we go through the, through the system. And I love this idea you talked about, you know, this training system where you never get to the point where you think you've made it because there's always something else to learn or something else to do or another way of thinking about it. Um, I think it's a really nice idea. You talked about how you coped with that so that you generally said that you coped best when you felt prepared so you did lots of visualization you took literally reams and reams of notes after everything you did and it sounds this real professionalism for you started like quite early on in, in your career it was reassuring to hear that even professional frontline pilots still get nervous when when they do what they do told this incredible story about you in this really serious emergency situation uh, on the front line and, and how you cope with that and um, then do that then we talked a bit about how we debrief and, and kind of how, how we make sense of that my final question for you, and I'm just going to, I hope this is more of a discussion point for people that listen to the podcast and come back and have a chat with me about it because I'm interested. Given everything you've learned, you know, from the world of, of aviation, but particularly the world of, of fast jet, fast jet flying, what do you think performance sport can learn from the world of fast jet flying in aviation? So I think there's a big crossover between performance sports and military aviation um, and quite a lot of the the books I've read have kind of alluded to this fact. And I think there's definitely a lot of transferable skills uh, between the two things. I guess the big difference is that performance sport, you're it's very phys- physical, but compared to fast jet flying, however, there's a physical element to that as well. But I'd say regardless of how physical it is, I think it all comes down to, uh, as I'm preaching to the converted here, but it all comes down to your, to your mental game, I think. And that is something that, performance sport and, and aviation and military aviation really share. I think for the the one thing that co- that coaching uh, of performance, elite performance sport could take away 
is probably I think there's a lot to be said for how the the debriefing style works and the effort that goes into that as as I said it can be be very painful and you can spend significantly more hours debriefing for even just a one or two hour mission but going through everything in slow time and um you'll you'll see things that you didn't even potentially were aware of doing at the time which is so important because when you're in the heat of the moment and there's a million things to think about and you're you're focused on the task at hand you don't you always have the opportunity to take that step back and see the bigger picture or see exactly how what you're doing is affecting the the wider uh, scenario so i think taking the effort to really debrief everything in detail will, will always be a good thing to do no matter how tedious or painful it may seem at the time and and you need to just be focused for that debrief and take notes and reflect upon it and then the next day you will you'll come back and you'll and you'll do better you'll definitely do something better or differently uh, than you did before um so i think that that whole debriefing culture is really really vital thanks matt i've written down a lot there yeah the mental game super important we probably need to spend a bit more time thinking about that sometimes and this business of debriefing there's there's some real parallels like a, my day jobs in canoeing and like white water time for example like down at lee valley in london it's unbelievably expensive and so yeah i'll be really spending the time to to debrief on that you know sports like skeleton bobsled you know you get one shot on that track or you know what i mean like, like can we maybe be more disciplined and more professional about how we how we try and extract learning from that Matt, thank you so much. Uh, that was an absolute joy. And I just, I, I hope people listen to that and l- listen again to it because there's just so much in there. And um, a, you're a great storyteller as well. So thank you very much. Folks, I hope you have notebooks out for this one. I hope you took loads of notes. Feel free to come back to me, have a conversation with me about it. Anything that you picked up on you want to chat more about, please, please do so. Please keep an eye out for future podcasts and hit subscribe to never miss out. And everyone, uh, in the meantime, please stay safe. Music